Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Imagine you just got home from work, dinner is ready, wine is chilled, and your man has offered you 15 minutes of heaven in the form of a foot massage. And then he says, your tanning session is now complete. What just happened? You found your escape at Palm Beach Tan. Break from the chaos at a Palm Beach Tan near you and leave rejuvenated. Take time for yourself at Palm Beach Tan and take that feeling with you wherever you go. Get up to $25 off your first month featuring Australian gold. Perfect man, not included. <laughs> Terrific Tommy's here. We're going to clean your carpets. How much? How much? How much? How much you got? Hi, Dependable Dan. You called about our $5 room special? You know, that only covers three square feet. You'll need our super-duper package. How much? Well, the living room is $75. Extra spots, $100 each. Hi, your wife called and said the carpets I cleaned are stiff and matted. I'll go get her. Are you tired of going through the same problems every time you want your carpets clean? Then it's time you called us. I'm Barry Minko, president of ZBest Carpet Cleaning. Your carpets deserve the care and expertise of our licensed, bonded, and insured technicians. So call now. I'll guarantee the work and the price in writing. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gaznavi at Cena Now on all social media. Justin Williams is here. You can find him on Facebook or JustinWilliamsComedy.com. Now that was Barry Minko. Justin, did you trust that commercial? Hell no. That was um, <laughs> <laughs> it was insane. Maybe it's because we've done the show, but every time someone says I'll guarantee something in writing, I'm pretty sure they're lying. Yeah, and also, I don't like the zany, old-school cartoon music that was in the background of that commercial. That's what made me distrust the whole thing. It was the 80s. That was, like, very highbrow in those days. But I'll tell you what, though. Barry Minko was and still is a bad guy. But his journey, though, is one that left a wake of victims from his parents, his friends, to later in life, he defrauded his church. And you know who else were victims? The Mafia. <laughs> the real victims. Yeah. Yo, uh, I can't be sure, but I'm pretty sure I think I lost money on Z-Best too. I'm pretty sure I invested back in that in the 88, I think. <laughs> exactly. Barry Minkow is maybe the platonic ideal of fraudsters. The fraudsters fraudster. This story is taught in accounting books today. So, what all did this guy do? What well, it sounds like the starting lineup of the Chicago Bulls, the number of things he's done. Money laundering, credit card fraud, insurance fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, insider trading. 
Besides that starting lineup of frauds, he was concealing funds from the IRS, constructing a Ponzi scheme that enabled his company to gain $15 million through public stock offering and $40 million from private bond placements based on the company books, bolstered by millions and millions of dollars in phantom revenues. And last but not least, he embezzled more than $3 million from the parishioners at San Diego Community Bible Church. This guy stole from everyone. He stole his grandmother's pearls to the investors around the country to people dying of cancer. This dude even hustled his own life story, and we'll get into that uh, later in the podcast. It's incredible. Exactly. And he started off simple. He created a carpet cleaning company, ZZZ Best. Is that enough Z's? ZZZZ Best. Oh, my God. He started in high school in his parents' garage. By the way, why there's so many Z's? Each Z was supposed to be one of his future unborn children. So he wanted to have four kids. A little bit more on that later. And he could be Z best, but he couldn't be ZZ top. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So he started this carpet cleaning company. He couldn't grow it legitimately. So he needed to inflate his company's earnings to thousands of dollars at first. And then it was time to even grow even bigger, and he started cooking the books to the tunes of millions of dollars. He used fake insurance restoration projects, fake invoices, fake balance sheets. They even staged scenes to fool their auditors, who, by the way, never really looked too closely at the books. And it all culminated in ZBest going public in December of 1986. Barry Minko was the youngest CEO to take a company public. I guess we should also say, like, what does it mean to go public and why is it such a big deal? Well, in short, taking a company public is different than private ownership. By announcing public offerings and offering stock in the company, this allows consumers to make investments and own a piece of the company and potentially share in profits in either dividends or a rise in the price of the stock. This is important because it allows Barry to draw money from the general public, making them victims of the scam. And expanding the scope of the scam greatly. Imagine, instead of having to go do a meeting here and there, very individualized, you can crowdsource your wealth very quickly. Around the world, people can flood money into it. And three days after he went public, he got that $15 million windfall, had a party, and this guy's life couldn't be better. Well, that was until, like, all of these fucking frauds. It unwound itself seven months later when Minko resigned, Z-Best went bankrupt, and him along with 12 other guys got arrested for the largest Ponzi scheme on Wall Street to date. He was charged with not one, not two, not three, not four. Okay, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do the rest. It was 57 counts of fraud. <laughs> so many. He ended up sending only seven years and five months of his 25-year sentence. But Justin, that is really only half the story. After this guy goes to prison the first time, he chooses to turn his life around. He finds Jesus. Jesus is always there at your lowest point or your newest fraud. He finds his calling that he wants to help people. He earns a master's degree in religion and divinity in prison. He's on the right path, finally. He went from sinner to proselytizer. 
when he leaves prison, he becomes the lead pastor in a church, the San Diego Community Bible Church. And he starts a company, the Fraud Discovery Institute, to actually find frauds. Man, this guy had really turned the corner. Amen. He even worked for the FBI. The judge gave him an early release from probation. He helped bring in almost uh, you know, a billion dollars of fraudulent money. I mean, welcome to the power of his hand. Why do I feel like there's a but coming in here? But the devil plays his instrument in mysterious ways. In <laughs> <laughs> helping the FBI, he also saw a chance to make a buck. Using his good standing, he made up facts to draw the ire of the FBI on companies that he was investigating. Then he shorted those stocks, knowing that they would fall. Justin, where do you even think he got the money to make those bets? Don't say it. Yeah. No. Yes. Say his name, Justin. Jesus Christ! (laughs) This guy took $3 million from his church. Brett Wright was swindled out of $75,000. He wanted to honor his late wife by donating to the creation of a hospital in Sudan. In an email from Minko to Wright's daughter, he wrote, I believe we are honoring your mom's heart directly by helping the kids and the needy in Darfur in this hospital construction. All the atheists out there, let me hear you say, ho! Dude, this guy is so low. It's like... I like it when, you know, using Jesus to hustle people is not even the lowest part of the story. It's like there's also like people in Darfur now that have been brought into this. Exactly. Exactly. Just to recap, this man has a lifetime of fraud under his belt. From Wall Street fraud to church fraud to defrauding the mafia, which is somehow he's still alive after doing all of this. But, you know, we want to get to know the guy behind the fraud. How did he become the way he was? So let's get into his childhood and figure out what happened. The author, Daniel Axt, wrote a book called Wonder Boy, The Kid Who Swindled Wall Street. And he interviewed his parents and people close to Barry. And it was great. Really well done book. And throughout this series, we're going to be pulling from interviews and news clips and even congressional testimony about Minko and Z-Best. And bear with us as we try to bring in the characters, because there are so many fraudsters in this thing. It's amazing how fraudsters attract each other. Kind of like how you see like one juggalo, and then all of a sudden like 10 more juggalos show up. Next thing you know, you're like in the middle of a Fago shower, and you can't find the exit. So it's it's going to be really uncomfortable, I think, at points. <laughs> I've been to a lot of juggalo events, and don't you besmirch the great people. Whoop, whoop! <laughs> Barry Minko was born in Los Angeles at 7.57 p.m. on March 22nd, 1966. He's the youngest of three children and the only son of Robert and Carol Minko. That's going to be important a little bit later because his parents played a huge part in his life, like they do everyone's. Childhood was no walk in the park. His mother was abusive to the siblings and hospitalized multiple times for a variety of mental health reasons. His father was on and off work, and that ends up being a critical piece. His father was really unable to support and provide for his family, 
and their family depended on handouts from friends and family. And because of this, Barry at a very young age viewed his father as weak. Barry was a hyperactive kid, diagnosed with ADD, always getting into trouble at school, to the point where his father sent him away to military school for 7th and 8th grade to try to straighten him out. That always works, doesn't it, right? That always works. You just send the kid away. Try <laughs> abdicate your responsibility to your children. I'm telling you, it's guaranteed to work. Well, turns out Barry Minko just got his ass kicked all the time while he was in military school. So he came back to Los Angeles for high school. And like all good sociopaths, he got validation from the gym. He started lifting at 14 at the Valley Gym in Reseda. Anyone out there in Reseda go to the Valley Gym? Is that still, is that still around? It's probably not open right now, I suppose. He couldn't afford the fees at the gym, so he scrubbed the showers on Saturday and Sunday mornings and lifted four hours a day, four times a week. Yo, that is so much lifting. Yeah, it's like, it's like, dude, are you trying to get in shape or are you trying to win the Intercontinental title at SummerSlam? <laughs> I don't even know how to lift at that age. It was so terrifying. But at the gym, though, Barry met what would be a lifelong con man in arms, Tom Paget. Paget was a 30-year-old vet and loved Barry's charm and tenacity. Barry was only 14 at the time, but Paget quickly became a father figure to him. And here's how you're going to remember Tom Paget. He's a white separatist who likes to talk about guns, warfare, and the psychology of conflict. Justin, can you break down what a white separatist is, please? White separatism is a far-right ideology that believes in ideas of racial purity and rejects multiculturalism as part of an elaborate conspiracy of the cultural and demographic destruction of white people around the world. As a remedy, white separatists feel that they should separate from society by either creating compounds or even moving towards the creation of separate white-only republics. Well said. Well said, my friend. Well said. And just to kind of like build the picture of this guy a little bit, let me pull a quote here from uh, Dan Ack's book here when he's describing an interview that he had with Paget. Paget's talking about Z-Best, and he always related Z-Best to the national socialist hierarchy. <laughs> and he would go on to explain in the conspiracy who was Goering, who was Himmler, and Barry was always Hitler. And of course... Who was the Adolf Eichmann of carpet cleaning? I, I don't, <laughs> but you know this, Justin. Every time you talk to a white separatist, which is often, we talk to them every day, don't we? Um, but they, they will say that they're not a Nazi. And Todd Paget always said he was not a Nazi, but he does love to talk about Hitler. And he even went on the TV show Race and Reason with Tom Metzger, who was a white supremacist and former California Ku Klux Klan leader. So, you know, a good talk show guest. Hi, I'm Tom Metzger, your host for Race and Reason. Race and Reason, a show dedicated to freedom of speech, total free speech, that small island of free speech in a sea of controlled and managed news. Now I go to my co-host, Tom Paget, who will introduce our guest for the day. Tom, what do we have? Tom, you're not going to believe who we have on the show today. We have an individual who you've been on his show five times and stomped him five times. Ha! And you've issued a challenge for him to show up on our show. 
Well, Nobody he, stops he, me. He's he, he delaying and delaying and delaying for a long time. Finally, he's worked up the nerve to come on. Take a look at him. For those of you who know him, no introduction is necessary. For those of you who don't, this gentleman calls himself Wally George. Wally George host, on our show. The host of the controversial okay. right. TV show, The Hot took, Seat. He finally right. accepted finally. my challenge. Now, first of all, uh, let me explain right. to those. Our, you're yeah. on our hot seat. Let me okay? explain to your fans yes. out there, Tom, yes. both of your fans yes. uh, who might be watching. Let me explain, first of all, I am not here because I agree with this dimwit. I am here as a conservative to uh, tell you that all people, all people are not nitwits like these Nazi Con, perverts. Conservative. Hey, believe do you that? think the founding fathers believed in race equality? Wally? Of course I do. Why does the Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution state blacks were three-fifths of a person? Uh, for oh, voting for That's what the founding fathers said. You're interpreting things. And there's no I'm place, the Constitution no said, place in the Constitution where it ever said all men are created equal. So do you know that? Hey, it's not in there. One nation under bring God it. with liberty and justice for all. That's our are you pledge of allegiance. The, are you bringing the preachers into it now like no, you always do? No, that's our pledge of allegiance. Like these big I, shots over here. Yeah, definitely not a Nazi. And just uh, to be super clear, let's just play one more clip of our good buddy, Nazi Tom. You said on my show that, that you wanted the blacks separated from the whites. That's Isn't that true? That's segregation, Wally. But that's to give them self-determination. Oh, come on. No, no, hold on, hold on. Segregation is having people under you. Separation is having them determined for themselves. That's are what you we afraid advocate. black people can't achieve you it? Want to why, are, why is everyone afraid? They should be able to live wherever they want to live. Well, if you really want to ruin an afternoon, go ahead and Google race and <laughs> reason on YouTube. Uh, that'll really make you realize how far we've not come as a country. <laughs> yeah, you could have just watched the last Republican National Convention. Oh, <laughs> political. I'm edgy. <laughs> well, we're just going to call him Nazi Tom for the rest of the show. Uh, and I think that'll be a clear indication of who this guy is the whole time. Oh, and by the way, he, again, he's not a Nazi, but he did date Metzger's daughter, which, by the way, is another Nazi sympathizer dating a famous Nazi's daughter, uh, just like the uh, our previous episodes on the Spear of Destiny and the Hitler Diaries. Who among us hasn't repeatedly denied being a Nazi, but made sure that we've dated a Nazi's daughter? I mean, who among us hasn't experienced that? It's simply a way to understand how the other side lives. <laughs> but definitely not a Nazi. Later, by the way, at Z-Best, when Nazi Tom would meet with Jewish counterparts in business, they told him that he should turn his gold ring inside to hide the swastika on it. <laughs> Why hide it, Nazi Tom? Just be you. Be the Nazi that you were meant to be. So this is this is who Barry is hanging out with at 14 years old. So you can imagine this guy is a huge fan of Barry's. He's loving him. Barry's looking for a father figure, and I'm glad he found it in a white separatist in Nazi Tom. You know, when you're at the gym as much as Barry is, you're naturally going to get into gym culture. And what speaks more to gym culture than taking some steroids? Anavar, Anadrol 50, at his peak, this guy was benching 415, and he was just getting into high school. That's great. That means that he had plenty of back acne to match his face acne. <laughs> 
Which, by the way, his high school experience was extremely strange. He tried to buy friendships. He even paid a girl $100 to go on a date with him. He would come to school, Justin, in a brown polyester suit and striped tie and tennis shoes carrying a briefcase. He would write one and $2 checks to people. This is so sad. You know, this, this kid really was just trying to play make-believe as a 14-year-old. What were you like as a freshman in high school? I was also abusing anabolic steroids in high school <laughs> and, and, and writing checks to my classmates. So, you know, all of this is the same. No, no, I, I was on the debate team. I was wearing a lot oh, of FUBU. Nice. Okay. Um, a lot, uh, uh, I was wearing, a, yeah, the FUBU, especially the Fat Albert edition FUBU. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of those nice. things. Nice. Yeah, uh, I was trying to get music on Napster. I think that's what I was doing. Oh, yeah. Was it Napster then? Yeah, fuck yeah. I love that oh, LimeWire. LimeWire. You know, you get 80 viruses. Yeah, LimeWire was such a scam. I hated LimeWire. We should have, Fraudster should do an episode of LimeWire. I, I was on Hotline. I don't know if you know what that was. That was like a weird news group server where you went on like banner adventures anyways i was like kind of nerdy as well i played you know tennis i was um the weatherman at the t local high school internal television network so that was really strange i got made fun of but i didn't choose to like you know take steroids and try to buy my friends it's so sad yeah i just tried to tell jokes thought that was better than maybe <laughs> becoming a steroided headed freak well, not only was he on roids in high school, but this is when he started Z-Best. He learned the ropes by going along with his mother to her job as a phone sales operator at Same Day Carpet Care. So he got in. He started getting the knowledge of how the carpet industry worked. And of course, he ended up getting on the phone, helping his mom out, trying to make deals. One thing we do need to know, though, is because we're talking a lot, we're going to be talking about his carpet cleaning business, we should know what carpet cleaning entails. I, as an Iranian-American, come from a long line of Persian rugs. In fact, my father was a Persian rug salesman. We <laughs> know rugs, okay? We don't do carpets, okay? Carpets are basic. Rugs are classy, okay? If you want to get it, you want a Persian rug, hit me up, LPN at Gmail, DM me. We get you a nice... Nice Kashani rug. But listen, when you're washing a, a rug or the carpets, these guys apparently call themselves rug suckers, which is very strange and gross. And so when you clean the carpet, you've got to pump the cleaner into the carpet itself, bit by bit, and scrub as you're going. And then you use like, you know, there's steam cleaners, there's, you use heat. And then once you've gotten all the dirt loosened up, you just take a vacuum and suck it all up and you're out of there. Hence, rug suckers. And here's where he dips his toe into being a fraudster. Everyone starts with a little thing, right? A little bit of a fraud, a little nugget of a fraud. It's small, but it's not illegal. But when a customer would order a stain-proof coating, He'd only spray it on the high-trafficked areas, not the whole thing. This way, he saves the chemical and hopes the customer doesn't <laughs> move their furniture again. So, in 1982, Barry's 16. He's so swole that he now teaches at the gym and manages to clean carpets on the weekends. Again, the drive that this maniac has. Doing so much has to be tough. And the why behind it? that his father was unable to provide for him and his family. 
The same year, another gym rat and surrogate father to Barry named Daniel Kropman Sr. lends Barry $1,600 in return for 50% of the profits. Barry does the work and keeps the rest. And just like that, Z-Best is born. The Z-Best carpet cleaning. Call now. Z-Best, the last word in carpet cleaning. But listen, like any kid, he doesn't know what he's fucking doing. He couldn't make payroll. Checks would come in at different times. He didn't know how to manage cash flow. Imagine he's he's roiding up this whole time and he's got to figure out how to make ends meet. So he borrows 2K from his grandmother and that's not enough. So he steals her pearls to pay for expenses. He's constantly lying. He's forging school passes. And somehow, Freudian's in the room here, his mother's wedding ring disappears somehow. Not sure how that happened. He's such a mess. His parents... Send him to a therapist. I'd say a little too late, if you ask me. <laughs> so as much as he was lying and trying to make payroll and trying to make this facade of a personality real, it took a toll on him. And at 17, Barry had worked himself into an ulcer. A fucking ulcer, man. And that doesn't even count the testicle shrinkage from the steroid abuse. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. But here's how he got this also, right? Remember check kiting back at the Annie Delvey episodes? Well, Barry had an in at the bank. Just like our girl Anna Delvey, she was able to convince a man at the bank. In Barry's case, it was a guy named Robert Turnbow. He convinced Turnbow to be his banker and allow him to open an account. Despite only being 16 at the time, Turnbow saw something special in him. Just like Nazi Tom... Just like Cropman Sr., Turnbow saw the magic in this kid. And all of a sudden, Barry had another father figure in Turnbow. Why did Robert Turnbow not notice that Barry Minko was uh, sitting on another kid's shoulder as they were both surrounded by a giant trench coat when he came into the bank? I think that's a red flag. <laughs> Turnbow allowed Barry to submit checks and then make a withdrawal before the checks cleared. Perfect for a check kiter, right? One time, Barry had deposited some checks, then withdrew $20,000. The account, of course, bounces the $20,000, but Turnbow arranges for Barry to get a $20,000 loan to cover it. I mean, enablers, people, enablers. Can you imagine doing any of that? It's just like, no, 16-year-old kid, you cannot, you cannot have any more money. You, I'm not going to get you a fucking 20k loan but it gets even better justin it's like that eddie murphy sketch where he uh, paints his face and lives as a white man and the bank is just giving yeah. him free money yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but remember nazi tom though well at that time his actual job was not a gym rep but it was an insurance adjuster and he was actually kicking barry some rain jobs to do carpet restoration so barry did a terrible job on these and when the clients refused to sign off he would just forge their signatures. <laughs> and Nazi Tom just keeps giving him work and even gives him 
a loan of $4,500 that was actually backed by his own savings. So Barry is constantly looking for money. He goes to his buddy, Nazi Tom. He's like, I need money to cover my expenses. Can you help me out? And Nazi Tom didn't want to do it. He didn't want to give him the money, but he's like, listen, I love you. Here's $4,500. I'm covering it with my own savings. And immediately, Barry can't pay the loan. Nazi Tom gets a call. Hey, man, that $4,500 you took out, you missed a payment. So Nazi Tom, being the, 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 the sage father figure that he is to Barry, gets upset at him. And Barry, being the loving surrogate son, feels really bad. We actually have some audio of, of Nazi Tom being angry. Dass ich mich in diesen Jahren für dich eingesetzt habe, dass ich anständig meine Zeit verwendet habe im Dienste meines Volkes. Gib du jetzt deine Stimme ab. Wenn ja, dann tritt für mich ein, so wie ich für dich eingesetzt habe. <lacht> so, Barry tries to make it up to him. He comes over to Nazi Tom's house with a, with a new car radio that he got, quote, somewhere. And Nazi Tom is having a party or some sort of clan gathering and just gives him the keys to his car. He says, go ahead, just try to install it. And Barry comes back a few minutes later. Quote, Tom, the radio's not going to fit. <laughs> Nazi Tom feels like it's the thought that counts and says, don't sweat it, Barry. So Barry mended the relationship. He did what he needed to do to make sure that Nazi Tom didn't feel bad about Barry missing the loan payment. But the next day, when Padgett goes to work, he notices his glove compartment was open and two bank drafts were missing. <laughs> These were apparently checks that adjusters could use on the spot to settle a claim. And Barry took two of these. Okay, so just to give you an idea, let's say you have a flood in your house or something and the adjuster from the insurance company comes over and they're just like, all right, I know how much this is going to cost. Here's five grand. Instead of having to go through all the paperwork and all the stuff, they empower the adjuster to just cut you a check. <laughs> and Barry took two of these checks. Nazi Tom's upset now, very upset. He orders a stop payment on these checks. And when he finds out what happened, turns out Barry deposited the checks for something over six grand with made-up claim numbers and forged Nazi Tom's signature. He forged his surrogate dad's signature. That's so sad. So get this. Barry's got to deposit the checks at the bank that Turnbow's at, right? Because he's overdrawn. To solidify the, the fraud, Barry has a girlfriend Call Turnbow, posing as Nazi Tom's secretary to let him know the drafts had been issued and that they would be coming in soon. All of these checks bounced. Hi, this is Janine, secretary at White Power Insurance Claims. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to let you know that uh, the money is totally there and please accept the check from the 16-year-old boy, Barry Minko. Thank you, White Power. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> But this is just the beginning. This guy's young. He's got ways, ways to grow. Forging signatures and check cutting wasn't it. He also did credit card fraud. When customers would give their credit card numbers. Now, remember, back in the day, 
credit cards got processed a lot differently. No one just went and fucking tapped. You didn't use your iPhone. You didn't even, you didn't even like insert the chip. A chip? Are you kidding me? Back in the day, you would take your credit card, give it to the person across the counter. They would put it in a machine that was very analog, not connected to the internet at all. And it would be this kind of swipe thing where it was like this, and it would make that noise. And it would basically imprint the credit card number on carbon paper, which I think has since been deemed very toxic. And so there's like a red paper and a yellow paper, and they just like, they swipe it, and then it imprints the numbers and all the info on the credit card. That's why old credit cards had the text and the number kind of uh, pushed up a little bit so that those credit card swiping things could use it. So you get a receipt for the credit card transaction, the the business gets to keep the other one, and then the business takes that credit card slip, goes to the bank, and they can deposit it just like it's cash. But that's not the only way to purchase something with a credit card. You can also phone it in. And this somehow in the 80s was just a way people did business and just trusted that there wouldn't be an immense amount of fraud all the time. You could just call in, a guy could write down your credit card information on a slip of paper, and then they take that slip of paper and just take it directly to the bank. And this is what Barry was doing. He would just take these credit card numbers, fill out the information and whatever he wanted to charge, take it to the bank, and the bank would immediately deposit it like it was cash. In one instance, Lucille Frost was hosed in February of 1985. She got a $75 carpet cleaning job that she paid for with $60 cash and $15 by check. That was on February 9th. Okay, you with me so far? February 9th, she does the job. A ZBest crew member asked her for her CC info to verify her identification. Okay, she gives them the information. That's all on February 9th. The next day, February 10th, there is a $389.50 charge on her credit card. <laughs> Two days later, February 12th, an $800 charge. <laughs> February 13th, a $200 charge. Yo, within four days, they had racked up uh, over $1,000 in credit card charges. And the icing on top of the cake and the cherry and all of these things they actually managed to get another credit card from Lucille that she never even gave them the number to, and they charged over $1,700 to that credit card. I just, this is still, the man can't even drink yet. He can't even serve in the military, and he is already committing fraud at a huge scale. This is, you know, especially because it's all all taking place in the 80s, this is what I call risky business. (laughs) Meanwhile, no one knows that Barry's a crook. Barry is somehow this charismatic guy that everyone loves. You know, the mayor later in Barry's career, after the company goes public, would go on to say that Barry set a fine entrepreneurial example by becoming a millionaire at 18. Everyone loves Barry. They're captivated by Barry. You know, not just the mayor applauded him. After uh, the company went public, Barry actually also went on Oprah Winfrey. Think big, be big. Really? End of story. Think big, be big. I 
I want. It, it, it's that simple, actually. Actually, it's uh, think big, be big by doing a bunch of steroids and lifting four hours a day. Exactly. Again, I I jumped ahead a little bit to tell you a little bit some of the nice things that people had said down the road, but know that this entire time people were captivated by Barry Minko. They couldn't get enough of this kind of constant salesman. And he may not have been popular in school, but people kind of bought into it. And they gave him enough recognition where he ended up getting voted most likely to succeed and class clown. So think about that. That is your personality getting cemented in just like Jim Baker did back in the day where people loved him so much. They thought he was amazing. They still made fun of him. They still thought he was weird, but they were like, this guy's going places. Justin, what was your senior superlative? Well, based on the signatures in the back of my yearbook, I was voted most likely to have a good summer. (laughs) I was voted uh, most involved, which is like the, I'm such a spaz, I got involved with every single activity. All right, it may seem odd that this struggling carpet cleaning company was able to say it was making millions of dollars. I mean, how many garage outfit cleaning companies do you know that are raking it in? It's not like that great of a business, people. Well, it wasn't really the carpet cleaning that was the moneymaker. Barry had a side hustle. He had gotten into insurance restoration. Now, like I kind of talked about before, if there's water damage now, not just to your apartment, let's say to an entire office building or some other catastrophe like fire damage or something, an insurance company will come in and pay for it. That's why you buy insurance for your building or homeowner's insurance, what have you. And the insured, the person whose building got burnt or flooded or whatever, would call Barry or whomever and have them come over and fix everything all up. The insurance company then pays the insured And then that person pays Barry out, right? So does that make sense? The insurance company gives the money to the person paying the premium for that insurance. But with Barry, it was different. The insurance company was just paying them directly. Well, in this case, there was nothing that they were paying. They were just making it up the whole time. And again, Barry did it differently. And by differently, I mean fraudulently. Remember I said Nazi Tom was an insurance adjuster? Well, he was at Traveler's Insurance now, and he figured if you can't beat him, join him. So he would get Barry stationary from Traveler's with a supervisor's name on it. One example, that, and this actually happened. He used it to confirm that Z-Best was awarded $1.5 million for a repair job in National City in San Diego, California. You know what? Actually, let let me just have Nazi Tom explain it himself. Tom Pageant went with us to San Diego to show the trickery needed to convince ZBest's own accounting firm that ZBest actually had a big contract to restore a fire-damaged building in San Diego. In reality, there was no restoration job because there was no burned building to restore. Again, it was all a hoax to make ZBest look more profitable on paper. 
Why did this have to be San Diego? I mean, tell me that story. Well, nothing could be L.A. because then people could check it a lot easier. Do you see what I'm saying? If, 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 in fact, Barry took this to the extreme by going by, by picking out sites on the map like Arroyo Grande, Fremont, uh, National City, places that could not substantiate this kind of a, this size of a building. Uh, but it was Barry's attitude that if, if we would get something out of town and make sure these big jobs are out of town, no one can check on them. Let, let me just, like, refresh here, okay? Why was this a fraudulently good business, if you will. It's not like they were getting any real money from any of these things. It was all just to show money flowing in the business so that when Barry went to a bank or something, he could say, look at all the business I'm doing. I just did a $1.5 million repair job on an entire office building. Of course, you should give me a 20, 30, 40, $50 million loan because I need to buy you know, equipment for another job. I need to hire crew for this. And the bank is just going to look at that stationery that Nazi Tom stole from his traveler's insurance company. None of it is real. It is a complete facade. But in a world where banking and frankly money is just built on trust, you can take advantage of that trust to your own benefit. You know, Justin... When you tell one lie, you always have to tell three more, which meant he had to keep money coming in to the company to ensure that he was able to pay off the banks he owed to the money before. Again, show that you have a very elaborate business, go to the banks, ask for money, get the money, pay the banks that you previously borrowed money from off so that you can keep things moving. At this point, he again needs more money. And as luck would have it, his uncle turned him on to a construction job to fix some carpet. The job was at the home of an aging mobster named Jack Katane. Katane was a raspy voice guy who had made millions for the mob laundering money for them. So he was like a freelance mob guy, not actually affiliated with any specific mob family, but one that made money for everybody. He lived in SoCal and so his true mob connections were limited because in Southern California, the mob doesn't have too much of a presence there. So it's basically if Hesh from The Sopranos moved to L.A. Exactly. Barry, after doing the job, asked for a meeting with Katane to come to his office. And again, Barry doesn't have a real business. He's just got like a very elaborate improv show that he's putting on every day. And so Barry needs to look like he's got a lot of money coming in. Claiming at 19 that he's got over a million in revenue and that his income is over $300,000, to get Katane on board, he taps old Nazi Tom to come save the day. Barry and his Nazi sympathizing buddy wear a suit and tie, and when Katane comes in, they're... Again, improvising and furiously talking about how they hope the electricians did a good job on the last restoration project. All a fucking illusion. It's like a scene from Ocean's Eleven that didn't make even a V1 of the script. It's so pathetic and basic, but it worked. Katane was taken by Barry, loved Barry, and just fell right for him. And Katane would be Barry's entrance into the mafia and how a lot of money and connections that would come in to help him go public. They say that Katane was really impressed with Paget and Minko, particularly how they ended every sentence with yes and. 
They did think it was a little strange that uh, they ended the meeting by tapping each other on the shoulder and moving the stools away from the desk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's interesting here is that Katane had a soft spot for being a dad. He opened a savings account, actually, for his criminal defense attorney's kids, and he'd often take them on afternoon trips to the park and McDonald's. He was a friendly mafia uncle. And Barry, well, at this point, he's obviously very good at roping in father figures. And on top of that, less than 10 years earlier, Katane had lost his teenage son to leukemia. So he's got a soft spot for this guy. Katane got Barry connected to a direct financier who was skeptical about Barry, but Katane was able to get him to open an account for Barry anyways. The only caveat was Barry had to keep the account current. That means make sure you pay the bills, Barry. The day it was opened, Barry overdrew the account. <laughs> it's like immediately defrauded him. But Katane didn't care though. He didn't he just thought he was a little bit of a fuck up. He connected Barry with other investors to help him out. And you know what? He ripped them off too. And there were a couple people he did pay out because once the money comes in, you do have to pay some of the people out. So Barry was able to keep some people on the hook by just giving them the money that he borrowed in the future. Again, the thing that is connecting all of these people is that they loved Barry Minko. They believed in him. And through Katane, Barry also met a bookkeeper. This would be the key to convincing the financial institutions of ZBest's solvency and success. Mark Mortz was a relatively smart guy, uh, actually a backup fullback for his college football team, huge guy, blonde hair, light beard. He tried to run his own business but fell victim to quick expansion and had to file for bankruptcy. So he's looking for his next thing. And since Barry was screwing up all of his financial statements, and by screwing up, I mean not cooking his books properly, they turned to Mortz, who jumped in. Mortz ended up being in charge of the restoration business. Forging signatures, check kiting, cooking the books, just like Barry. He would be the one to raise the capital to help ZBest get ready to go public. And now, why is that important? Mortz is the one that's making the documents that people look at to determine if they're going to invest if they're accurate. So if you've got good-looking books like, oh, these lots of assets here, not a lot of debt. Okay, fantastic. I'll give you a million dollars. That's because of Mortz. And so right now, <laughs> I know we did like a starting lineup joke earlier, but it really is like the big three of fraudsters here. Barry is Jordan, Katane is Pippin, Mortz is Rodman, and Nazi Tom is Steve Kerr, always there just at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> just waiting in the corner to hit that white power three as time expires on the clock. Exactly. And just like creating that three-pointer, man, Nazi Tom kept his job at Travelers and created his own insurance adjusting company on the side called Interstate Appraisal Services. Remember this, Interstate Appraisal Services. He made this in November of 1985. This was done so that he could kick his own projects to Barry. Instead of having to, like, steal the stationery from Travelers, he didn't need to steal anything. He just kicked him his own jobs. Remember, this is November of 1985. A year from now, 
The company is about to go public and make millions of dollars. What happens in the next year is wild. So when you want to go public, you need to, again, we're all talking about the paperwork here, and I know it may feel boring, but this is where all the fraud is. Because it's so boring, they use that boredom to their advantage. And auditors were brought in. Everyone has to have an auditor. An auditor is just like an accounting firm or an accountant that says, hey, your books are good. We looked at them. We looked at the projects you have. You guys are A-OK. Now, the auditor's responsibility is not actually to the company they are auditing. The auditor's responsibility is not to Z-Best or the company. It's to the public, right? So if a company goes public, when an auditor says their books look good and a lot of people give money to that company and it ends up being a fraud, well, that auditor fucked the public over. Hmm, I wonder what happened here. <laughs> Ernst and Winnie was the auditor for Z-Best. Now, they're currently called Ernst & Young, and they eventually merged with Young. I don't know. There's all these places. All these places just merged with other people that have strange white names. Anyways. Yeah, the, it was the bi biggest merger since Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, incorporated together. <laughs> <laughs> so Mortz is cooking the books, and Ernst and & Winnie is eating all of them up. They love these books. They're so clean. Everything's flowing very nicely, but they are supposed to really look at not just the books, but what they represent. And like I said, the auditors are supposed to go to where they're doing business to make sure everything's real. But let me have Nazi Tom explain how they got around that. But late in 1986, Zbest's accounting firm, Ernst & Winnie, wanted to actually see job sites before they would certify the company's audits. Padgett says the accountants wouldn't take no for an answer. By January, they said, well, before we certify your next audit, we want to see one of his jobs in progress. Now, Padgett and his associates had to somehow find a structure that could pass for the building he says Minko dreamed up on paper. Padgett eventually found this one in downtown San Diego. He says it matched the paperwork perfectly. Six unfinished floors and two that were occupied. And then for added measure, Padgett and an associate rented this nearby warehouse and office. They furnished the office and filled the warehouse with inexpensive carpet. But it was just it was just a facade. I mean, there, this really was not a warehouse. In no, terms no. Of any job. No, right? no. This was all theater, right? Right. The main stage, though, was the office building. Padgett says he convinced a real estate agent he was interested in leasing an office. He was convincing enough that he was given a key to the building's main door, no strings attached. So in February, Mark Moore says he came down and he drove the accountant first to the warehouse and then to the building, which was temporarily adorned with Z-Best signs. He did it on a weekend when no one would be around to ruin the illusion that Z-Best was actually restoring the building. Everything was great. Um, uh, the, the, the accounting firm put their stamp approval on what they had seen. So... Nazi Tom and Mortz basically put on an entire elaborate show where they get the auditors to come to this building they just get to use on a weekend. They pay off the security guard. The auditors show up. They're like, hey, how you doing? Good to see you again, Mr. Minko. And the auditors are like, oh, very friendly with everybody here. They show them a building. They're like, yeah, we're in the middle of the, the, the restoration here. There's no restoration. There's no nothing. In the congressional testimony that happened uh, several months after everything blew up, the Detective Brambles from the LAPD actually talked about how 
the it would have taken the auditors 10 minutes to find out whether or not this job was real by just using a very simple device to see if there was any moisture within the building or anything. And they didn't do that. So for Barry, he's got the approval of the auditors. This is amazing. This now means people can say, oh, Ernst and Winnie, they're a big auditor. I trust what they say. Let's give Barry some more money. And he's got nearly a million dollars still in debt to his investors. And Katane isn't seeing any of this money. In fact, Katane's actually getting a little suspicious. He doesn't really realize that all these jobs are fake. He even calls Nazi Tom and says, these jobs better be real or you're going to regret it. Now, I'm not sure what an old mobster can really do, but I'm pretty sure they're more terrifying than a normal old guy. But Katane is really concerned, and he thought maybe Barry was talking to the feds or squirreling money away somehow. Their relationship deteriorated rapidly. On November 26, 1985, Barry stopped payment on $350,000 for three checks to Katane. Less than a week later, the FBI showed up with a subpoena looking for payments to Katane. Barry throws his surrogate dad right under the bus. Barry said Katane was extorting him and pressuring him for money, and this gave him some breathing room with the feds, but not a lot. So just like he needed more money to bring in to pay the previous loans off, Barry needed a new surrogate father to protect him from his previous surrogate father. <laughs> Barry was friends with Robert Victor, whose birth name was Robert Vigiano a member of the Colombo crime family. They met because Barry was friends with Robert's son, and here we go again, a new surrogate father. I like how Barry is just uh, Sharon Stone from Casino when she's like meeting in secret with um, Joe Pesci's character, and he's like, will you be my sponsor? Will you be my sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. First, we had Nazi Tom. Then, mobster Katane. Now we've got an even bigger mobster in Vigiano. Victor now was Barry's new defender, protecting him against Katane and any other naysayers. By the way, Robert Victor was 5'8", so my height, and 240 pounds, so 90 pounds bigger than me. And he had a panther tattoo on his forearm. So again, very intimidating man. I don't, I don't care who you are. Panther tattoos are very intimidating. A very lethargic panther was uh, tattooed on his forearm. <laughs> <laughs> and as Victor and Barry tried to squeeze Katane out, Victor, through a mutual friend, pulled in another savvy fraudster, Maurice Rind. God, I'm telling you, so many different people you got to keep track of in this episode. But Rind was a former stockbroker, and knew how to take a company public. All the while, Victor, his mutual friend, and Rind, they all believed in Barry. Rind was even quoted as saying, this is either the greatest deal or a Ponzi scheme. By the way, who says this is the greatest deal over a Ponzi scheme and just keeps going? Why don't you figure out if it's a Ponzi scheme or not? Why would you, why wouldn't you stop and try to vet that? Rin had already been to prison for securities fraud in 1976, and then again a few months later, and then again in 1983. This guy was built to join the Minko fraudster family. So how was Rin going to take a company that was 
Built on Tissue Paper Public? Well, we turn to some fun financial trickery, which luckily is much harder to do today, but still not impossible. It's called a reverse merger. It's when a company like ZBest wants to go public. They'll merge with an already public shell company. In this case, Utah was a breeding ground for this. Apparently, states have a lot of influence over how a corporation in their state goes public. So if you've got a company in New York or California, there's going to be a lot of rules you have to follow to take a company public. In Utah, though, what's interesting is that it was always a speculative market since even the Mormons settled, which means Utah applied the same sci-fi logic of their religion to their securities law. (laughs) So, And states that have a bunch of these shell companies like this are called blind pools. And here's why. I just want to be super clear on this because this is this is important. The company that ZBest was going to merge with was called Morningstar. And this company, this shell company, had virtually no capital. Again, based in Utah, Morningstar's president was a 33-year-old sales guy. Morningstar's headquarters was the president's home. <laughs> the secretary and treasurer was a housewife and also the president's sister-in-law. So how how did this all happen? Well, it's actually very simple. It's like just what we mentioned earlier. Ernst and Winnie just didn't look very hard. And Barry, Nazi Tom, and Mortz put on a hell of a show. And in the back, we were hoping that we would never have to see this building again. But Padgett says the real nightmare came three months later when the accountants decided they wanted to inspect the building that by now should have been restored. In fact, six floors of the building were still empty shells like this. Now, Padgett says, they were in so deep there was no turning back. They had to come up with another scheme. To create the illusion, Padgett says they had to actually lease most of the building and then make it look like it had been restored all in only 11 days. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going to spend money. You're going to buy or lease a building for a year? Right. Uh, well, hopefully for a year. We, we, we wound up doing it for seven years at the cost of over $2 million, but we were hoping to do it within a year. But Padgett says $2 million was nothing compared to what was at stake. If the accountants discovered that it was a fake job, they could pull the plug on a pending $80 million deal. In fact, the whole Z-Best operation. Now, 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 the scenario for here was, hey, the walls were damaged so bad, we just decided we'd put in an entire new interior. So you can see we've got it cleaned up, we've got it dried out, and here's the stage where we're at. And so now with most of the building looking like this, on May 1st, and with the inspection on May 11th, you can appreciate the magnitude of the problem that we had facing to have this whole building looking not like this by May 11th. And so Paget says Minko paid another $2 million to have legitimate contractors complete the job just in time for the accountant to walk through. It was one of the biggest miracles, I think, and and one of the biggest construction miracles in the history of this country. You know what else is a miracle? That the reporter in this case didn't ask Nazi Tom about being a Nazi. I don't know how he got so much, so, so much airtime all the time. It was fucking nuts. Are you kidding me? I look, yeah, do, do TV interviews and just ignoring the swastika ring. Like, well, I guess <laughs> An eccentric Tom Paget. <laughs> so look, the the fake weekend showing for the auditors worked a little bit, but then they were like, "Gotcha, bitch!" And they came back and they're gonna do it again. But this time they realize, "Oh my god, we gotta really make this building look good." And so think about it: 
When you need $80 million, who cares if you spend two? That's a fraction of what you're going to make. So they spend the money, make it look real, and boom, the auditors are on board. So we've got Barry leading. We've got Nazi Tom greasing the wheels. We got Mark Mortz cooking the books. And Maurice Rind helping get financing from legit and non-legit places. But finally, like always, you're going to need a lawyer to take this baby public. And to round out the starting lineup for the Los Angeles fraudsters is lawyer Mark Moskowitz. He was the securities attorney that Barry needed to go public with. Moskowitz was a Brooklyn native living in Los Angeles, and he lived in the valley right near where Z-Best's headquarters was. Barry and him hit it off immediately. It's almost like Barry found yet another surrogate father. Barry babysat his kids. They hung out. They got so close. And after everything blew up, Moskowitz, at his congressional testimony, said that they never had a special relationship. And one of my favorite parts of reading it, by the way, the congressional testimony was 200 pages and actually very exciting to read. Uh, Don't do it. I did it for you. And here's a good nugget. Congressman Ron Wyden from Oregon, he's now Senator Ron Wyden, played a video of Minko's 21st birthday. Now, now, by the way, let me just set this up. In the congressional hearing, Moskowitz is saying like, hey man, I didn't know no Barry Minko. Like, like we don't have a special relationship. We didn't hang out. Ron Wyden jumps in because another guy's talking. He's like, oh, would the gentleman yield? Would the gentleman yield? And it's like, sure, Ron, go ahead. And then he's like, can we play this video? And they bring out this video from Minko's 21st birthday. And this is after they had gone public. They're all wealthy. They're all fucking so happy about everything. Moskowitz appeared in a special birthday, ready? Rap video for Barry. (laughs) And they played the video in the subcommittee hearing, which they did not include in the transcript. They did not include a place to download this video. You cannot find this rap video. If you can find this rap video from Barry Minko's 21st birthday, name your price. I shall provide it for you. (laughs) but we do know what he said because Ron Wyden repeats it back to Moskowitz (laughs) and he says so you didn't have a special relationship Um, did you say this in the video happy birthday Mr. Minko I'm your legal arm with advice from me you will know harm my fees will be high but I'm not here from greed Happy birthday, Mr. Minko, from Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. Now, ironically, the transcriber here mistyped the lyric uh, when he says, with advice from me, you will know no harm. Uh, He actually just wrote, like, N-O-W. So, (laughs) with advice from me, you will know harm. It's uh, it's just shocking. You know, you know that I I want to see this tape because it might be the only rap video worse than the '85 Bears Super Bowl Shuffle. Oh God, come on, that's actually a good video. That is real. They <laughs> nobody's anywhere near the beat. Well, Wyden goes on to ask him, so you don't have a special relationship, right? And you know, they're just and I'm paraphrasing here, but he also asks him, So were you um 
going to also buy adjoining lots and build houses next to each other. <laughs> and Moskowitz is like, yes. <laughs> this fucking guy lying to his teeth. All right. Okay, so back to our timeline here. Ready? It's March of 1986, just months before they're about to go public. Now it's time for Barry to go around the country to drum up investment. Now, we said earlier, when you go public, all kinds of investment can come in throughout the world, but you obviously want to have a little bit of a head start. So Barry's going across the country with the stamp of approval from Ernst & Winnie. He's got all these books that look like they're amazing, right? And so here's how they lied to go public specifically. Everyone's got a fiscal year. Most of the time we think the end of the accounting year is December 31st or whatever. But every company actually can choose when their accounting year ends. And that's how your books run. Their fiscal year ended on April 30th. So they report all their earnings based on the year leading up to that date. So in the year ending 1984, their pre-tax profit at ZBest was $152,000. Huh. Not so bad. By April 30th, 1985, a year later, that number climbed to $357,000. Okay, that, that makes sense. And then April 30th, 1986, they were up to $1.81 million. But here's the beauty. The three months from April to the end of July, so a quarter right? Three months. They reported revenue of $5.4 million and pre-tax profit of $1.83 million. <laughs> More than the entire previous year they made in three months. This is absurd. This, if anyone, this is, drug dealers don't even turn profits like this. I mean, I don't understand how everyone, they, and they all ate it up. All of these investors were like, this is fantastic. Their, their company's growing so rapidly but it was all fake yeah even coronavirus thinks that those growth numbers are just a little bit much <laughs> <laughs> so they're primed and ready to go public but how are they going to manage this business it's a it's fucking public now how are they it's a it's a public ponzi scheme those would be some amazing uh shareholders meetings right they're like could we please see the figures on all the things that we're reading about in the news. No, uh, you actually cannot. No, it's like, no, as shareholders, we're actually entitled to see documentation of all the claims about profits and revenues for this company. Well, you will not be able to see those things because although this is a public company, the information is private. See, we are a public-private partnership, and that's what makes us the best. <laughs> How are they actually going to do this business? Okay, so here we go. I'm going to read from Daniel Ack's book again because he did a really good job breaking it down. And rewind if you have to because it's so simple but, but also kind of complicated. ZBest would raise money from investors, banks, or anyone else. It would pay this money to a marketing company that Mort's owned. Okay, so uh, raise money from investors, real dollars. They put that money through a marketing company that is owned by Mortz, which was supposedly an employment contractor that hired workers to perform Z-Best restoration jobs awarded by Nazi Tom's company, Interstate Appraisal. 
the marketing company would recycle the money back to ZBest either directly or through Barry's personal account. All right, so they're washing this money, if you will. Since Mortz's and Nazi Tom's companies were private, there wasn't much scrutiny on them on the way they did business because they weren't a public company. The nature of the banking activity with ZBest was masked by a series of checks to Barry's company from the interstate appraisal representing money paid by Nazi Tom's work performed by ZBest, right? So the interstate appraisal checks were never deposited. They were just forgeries created by Mortz to match ZBest deposit slips and therefore full accounts. So what the fuck does all that mean? When you spend money on something, somebody has to get paid for that thing. So if you don't actually have any of the money, you need to show that money came in, you spent that money, and then that person that received that money actually received it. So all they did was keep taking that money, flushing it through this system, and doing paperwork to make it seem like they were paying for actual services when none of that was happening ever. They put a payment in, they took an invoice out, they put a payment in, and then they shook it all about. They did the hokey pokey, and no work is being done. That's (laughs) That's what what it's all about. (laughs) In 1986 alone, $10 million moved between Mortz's company and ZBess. In the first half of 1987, $44 million flowed through. Now, of course, leakage occurred and the mob had to get paid. So, and he had to keep convincing the mob that this was a real thing as well because they're the ones trying to help him give money and and getting investment in there. Barry paid out the mob guys. He had to keep living his lifestyle. He had the cars. He had women. He had all of these things he had to pay for. And finally, the day came. December of 86, ZBest goes public and Barry fucking wins the youngest CEO to go public on the NASDAQ. $15 million for himself and millions upon millions more in stock. The stock on opening day started at $4 per share and then went up to $18 per share. At its peak, its market capitalization, which is how big the company is basically, was $280 million. (laughs) I mean, all fake. Not a single bit of it was real. And there are a lot of interviews where Minkow says, you know, the carpet cleaning company was legitimate, but the restoration, but no, all of it was fake. You did a fraction maybe of some real jobs with the carpet cleaning, but you made everything up, Barry. You're full of shit. Nazi Tom is probably the most honest guy here because he's a white separatist and tells you he's a white separatist. I like it too. It's like if you see a market cap of two hundred eighty million, can you imagine what the CEO of Rug Doctor was thinking? He's like, "What the hell is this shit? <laughs> what Where did these guys on? come from? <laughs> we are fucked." <laughs> but listen, guys, I know that was a lot. We're gonna stop here for today, and we're gonna actually pick up next week with the downfall, which is, I think, a lot of fun. You know, frankly, it was frustrating to see this guy pull in all this money throughout this entire episode, but rest assured, he gets his comeuppance. So next week, we'll talk about how it all blew up, how it went bankrupt, how he went to prison, how he got out of prison, how he went back to prison, (laughs) and everything in between. 
As always, big thanks to Hazel Bryan, our producer, Emily Fusco, on some amazing research for this one. It was a, a tomb of research that we got. Marie Anderson on the edit, thank you so much. And as always, this has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media.